Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Hey folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast for film lovers by film lovers. My name is Rob. I've spent a large part of my adult career working in the film industry and an even larger part of my entire life being absolutely obsessed with movies. My co-host on this show is Sam, who has spent a large part of his adult career being educated on literary theory and books and words and stories and all of the academic and theory side of what it means to tell a story between the two of us we come together and take apart movies and discuss the movies and the themes and ideas they project and produce the idea being that sam brings the ideas of what things should make sense and i try and bring the more practical filmmaking element to it each episode we pick a film we tear it apart and we end the show with what else we recommend based on the movie of the week but before we get into our film, we often talk about what else we've been watching. We've had a little few weeks break now, we've a lot of it. So Sam, in our lockdown 4.9, wherever we are these days, has anything caught your fancy? Something that I watched in the first lockdown was the climbing documentary I'm obsessed with. I'd never be able to do it, but I love climbing documentaries. And I, I can do it, but to a much much lower standard than anything in these documentaries and um there's a documentary about a guy who climbed el capitan in yosemite uh without ropes um he was the first person to do so on a particular route um but climbing experts say the route was particularly easy i mean it it's not it looks insanely hard but um, the documentary I watched this week called The Dawn War is about um, someone navigating their way up a route which is apparently harder um, and this time he used ropes and so I, I enjoyed this although actually I'm going to go against the critical consensus and well not the, the climbing consensus and say that actually I preferred free solo. When they came out, it was generally thought that free solo was the critic's choice and it won an Oscar and it was very successful at the box office and the dorm wall was for climbing purists. And I can see that, I can see that the achievement in the dorm wall is, from a, a climbing point of view, a, a more successful one. Um, want to be greatly lauded, but I just, I, I, I kind of, it's impossible to warm to the character, the main character in Free Solo, but that's kind of what I liked about him. Um, he has that really sort of spiky demeanor that might be sort of, it's almost certainly autism spectrum disorder of, of one kind or another. And I really quite like this sort of dysfunctional relationship he had with other people and thus with his climbing. And the Dormal, okay, the main character has been through various traumatic episodes in his life, but he's 
essentially quite a likeable figure and I found it quite an easy watch for that and Free Solo was definitely not an easy watch and I kind of enjoyed that a bit more. So that's my, my recommendation this week is for two documentaries, one I watched this week and one I watched in the about 17 lockdowns ago, when, whenever this started. <laughs> How you? I cheekily also have two recommendations this week. Um, one I'll move it quite quickly. Um, my wife and I were discussing movies that I loved and she didn't, and the fact that she didn't like The Rock came up. Um, and as a man of a certain age, The Rock is quite a seminal movie for me in my teenage years, and I was obviously aghast by this and shock horror, and so we agreed to watch it again. So we watched The Rock, and uh, I've converted her. She now appreciates the glory that is The Rock. Um, secondly, after many, many people going and recommending it to me, I finally sat down and watched Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This is a film, obviously, from 2018. Um, so it's been around a while, um, and it's had been receiving plaudits since that time, and everyone who's seen it has recommended it to me. And before lockdown started, one of my colleagues lent me the Blu-ray of it that has sat in my house for a year and a half, because I haven't seen him since. And I actually sat down and watched it, and it was ace. It was just brilliant. It was a wonderful new take on the Spider-Man story. Um, it felt alive and passionate in a way other films haven't. And that isn't to say that the recent Spider-Man films, they're very good films, but this is a different breed of movie, trying to tell a very different sort of story. Um, if you haven't seen it, and you really, really should. I know everyone has said this to me for the last two years. Like I'm literally parroting what's been told to me. Um, but I think you should have, I think if I'd had chances at cinema, I would have jumped at it. This is uh, a beautiful and amazing looking movie, as well as being a, a very tight and very light uh, story arc. Is it the the um, animated one? Yes, yeah, it's the animated one. It tells it, it's it's the Spider-Man story of Mar- Miles Morales, who is an alternate version of Spider-Man, um, rather than being Peter Parker. Um, so it's his journey, rather than his, and that alternate realityness of it is a large part of the story. So I won't say any more because it gives away things, but it's just it's very well done, especially someone who grew up reading Spider-Man comics and watching Spider-Man cartoons. Um, it was very, very good in that respect. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's one of those movies where you like, as we both said in this film, like on the, on the show, people recommend stuff for several years, and you watch it. Oh yeah, that was really good. I should have done that a year ago. And, and that's where I am. So yeah, into the Spider Verse. So we are continuing this week with our sort of mini season on Disney films. We're looking at Disney films from. Um, period of time known as the Disney Renaissance. I didn't know till this evening. I just found that. Um, it was a period between 1989 and 1999, the Disney Renaissance. They were more critically acclaimed than they more successful at the, the box office than they had been before. Um, so we're looking at a number of films, some of them from that era, and then their remake from the last decade. And this week we are launching into 1992's Aladdin. Three years ago, we took you on a magical journey under the sea. 
Last year, we took you to a place where a beautiful girl looked into the heart of a beast and found the man of her dreams. Now, come with us and enter a whole new world beyond your imagination where a boy discovers a magic lamp and a genie who can make all his dreams come true. 10,000 years will give you such a crick in the neck. So what'll it be, Master? I must have hit my head harder than I thought. Walt Disney Pictures presents Aladdin. You're a genie? That's right. He can be taught. You never feel like me. <laughs> Imagine a whole new world of excitement. Imagine carpet. Danger. Whoa, carpet, let's move. And enchantment. It's the story of a poor boy from the streets and a beautiful girl from a palace. Princess Jasmine. They were two very different people. The law says you must be married to a prince. Brought together by one incredible wish. What is it you want most? There's this girl. Pretty. Beautiful. Say l'amour. But she's the princess. To even have a chance, I'd have to be... Say the magic words. Genie, I wish for you to make me a prince. All right! Hang on to your turban, kid. We're gonna make you But the evil sorcerer Jafar has learned the secret of Aladdin's power. He has the lamp. And he'll stop at nothing to steal it away. It's time to say goodbye. We'll just see about that. This is not done yet, boy. Imagine the world at your command. Genie, I need help. Jasmine won't even let me talk to her. No! Only to discover the greatest power is within. Remember, be yourself. Do you trust me? Aladdin, featuring six new songs from the Academy Award-winning composer of The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Come over here, big group hug. Group hug. Never, ever. Coming this holiday season, Walt Disney Pictures, Aladdin. You never had a friend like me. Aladdin doesn't need much of an introduction like Beauty and the Beast that we looked at a few weeks ago. It is... Um, the almost the archetypal Disney film it is from that uh, Disney Renaissance period. Um, it's based on the um, Aladdin story from the Thousand and One Nights loosely, um, but it is um, a lot more audience friendly than that. Um, you might put it, and it follows the central character Aladdin, who is a, a poor market urchin, and he predictably falls in love with someone completely unattainable. And um, Princess Jasmine, who wants to be something she's not as much as Aladdin does, and it's about their growing relationship and the. Um, interference of the king's vizier, grand vizier um, Jafar, um, and his plans to get hold of the lamp in which there is um, shut away a magical genie played um, 
amazingly in one of his stand-up roles by Ron Williams. And that's about it. Um, so, Rob, what are your thoughts? Well, I think like a lot of films we've been talking about in this series, this film is my childhood. It came out in 1992. I was all of 10 at that point, and I was deep in my Disney love. So, yeah, I love this film since my childhood, and I still love it now. I think I think you've highlighted there the real big strength of this movie is Robin Williams. He, him as the genie is a standout performance and one that has cemented his role in pop culture in many ways. It is Robin Williams as much as it is the genie. And it is the one part I'm most fearful of watching next week for our uh, looking at the remake, mm. because I don't know how you do that movie without Robin Williams, because he is he is the movie. The rest of the characters are nice and lovely, but mostly forgettable. That being said, I think the film looks amazing the work that was done in Beauty and the Beast bringing in CGI you can see here again in some of the seascapes you can see it in some of the shots of the uh, the head the the, the, sort of the sphinx in the desert um, and I think that it has got some brilliant tunes and in, in, in these movies you want good songs I think that it has very good and memorable songs um, I can't think of any songs that, that aren't standout ones which you do often get a few in most of these movies so yeah, I I was a fan of this movie and I remain a fan of this movie. It is, as you say, of the Disney, Disney Renaissance. It is of that era and they are renowned for being good movies. Um, we may touch later on that there were two sequels to this movie. The Return of Jafar um, was the first one um, and Aladdin and the King of Thieves was the second one. Uh, they were of varying quality, um, shall we say. And I even recall there being a TV series as well. But... Uh, that not as good, but yeah, the first one certainly I enjoyed, and I think think it holds up, and it holds up in a way that a lot of times movie makers like Pixar get praise for having movies that work for adults and kids, and I think this movie does that. I mean, it is obviously a lot on the shoulder of Robin Williams, but there are certainly jokes that Robin pulls off that I'm like, as a ten year old kid. I don't think I'd have got that joke. But now, because I'm older and I, I, I understand more of the world and get more ref- references, I get them. So I think it has got that. And I think I still enjoy watching it. And it isn't a case of I watch it for nostalgia's sake. I enjoy it as a movie in itself. What about you, Sam? This, like Beauty and the Beast, is another one I hadn't seen. Um, also, like Beauty and the Beast, it's one I very much enjoyed. I wasn't really expecting to. It didn't feel like something that I would. Um, pretty much my my only knowledge of it is is Princess Jasmine and not not really engaging with her as a character. So I didn't feel the need to watch it. Um, and I thought it was really good. I particularly liked Robin Williams. Like as as you say, I'm I'm also bit trepidatious about what's going to happen next time because I mean I liked Independence Day but can Will Smith do this? Hmm, we'll see um, but yeah I, I really enjoyed this film um, I enjoyed it from the start the, at the moment there's a moment at the very start when um, the narrator is 
um, comes into shot on this camel, which incidentally moves in a sort of jerky way, kind of like Mickey Mouse animation in the 1920s, and I quite like that sort of nod to Steamboat Willie. Um, but something he does, and he says, he says, come closer and hear my story, basically, closer, closer, no, too close, the, the camera smashes up against his face, and there's a fourth wall break, mm. and immediately, the moment he did that, I thought, oh, this is cleverer than I thought it was going to be. I was, I was pleasantly surprised from that moment, and I remain so throughout this film. Yeah, I think I think that, that, that opening section, which also Robin Williams is, is narrating the uh, the cellar. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. him as well. Um, I think you're right. It does establish very early on, but it's very good at establishing the, the sort of the mise en scene of the movie and also the tone. Like you straight away, you know you're an Agrabah. You know that it's trading on these Eastern myths. Um, you know that it, that's a kind of story getting and getting the time and place, but also getting the humour. Like the De- Dead Sea Tupperware is a little, little joke because, like, Tupperware is a thing that only exists now. It didn't exist, obviously, when this film is basically set. Um, so the film is setting its stall out really early in terms of its meta and its. It's as you say, the fourth wall breaking. And I thought watching it a lot about uh, Deadpool because I've watched Deadpool 2 recently. And I had that mm. real sense there of, like, in Deadpool movies, only Deadpool knows he's in a movie. Like, he's the one who's narrating to you. No one else references that. And here, it's only Robin Williams, but none of the other characters reference that there is a camera or that it is a movie. But you know, the, the narrator and kind of Genie does as well. They both, exist, they both exist in a world that knows, exists in our world as much as it does their world. And has that real metal layer to it. Um that the rest of the characters don't. But I think the film has some things to say as well. It is a kid's film, but this, you know, these were folk tales originally, and they are talking about things. And, and I think you mentioned it in previously is that the biggest thing that I felt from this, and I think you agree was the idea of class. There's a large part of this movie is about the fact that he's a street rat and she's a princess. And there is like, there are echoes of things like Romeo and Juliet in this movie. But Romeo and Juliet, they were both houses of like dignity. They, they, the houses were the same. They were enemies, but they were the same level. Whereas here, it's much more the princess and the pauper. He he is. Yeah. He has n- something. Yes. Well, just around, something I wanted to talk about this time is the idea of worth. The idea that this film seems to be all about people, I mentioned it in the introduction, it's people wanting to be something they're not quite, and whether someone is worthy of doing something else. And even when when the king and Jafar are talking about who should marry, who I'm, I'm doing it there, who should marry mm. Jasmine, it's all about should, and whether someone can or whether someone is worthy. Um, it's interesting that I'd, I'd heard... I said that that in I, I was sort of maybe maybe suggest I didn't want to watch this film and the idea of Jasmine it, it was a bit of sort of a stereotype of a Disney princess and then I I heard that in the remake of Aladdin she was given more prominence and given more agency 
So I was kind of surprised to note that Jasmine in this seems already to have agency. She already sticks up for herself. She already, in there's that scene when Jafar and the king and Aladdin as the prince are sort of squabbling over who should get to marry Jasmine. And Jasmine comes in and says, how dare you? How dare you do this? Mm. So the idea of, of worth for for her is something something fundamentally different. Well, I think that's the thing is that, you know the as you say it's all about people pretending to be so they're not. You know you have the the lovely mirroring mirroring of Jasmine pretending to be a common girl and a common boy, but Adam pretending to be a prince, and both the deceptions ultimately keep at arm's length. The, the deceptions kind of ruin things more. If honesty would have been the best policy all along, and mm. but the the moral of the movie is saying that these people, if they were honest, could never have met, and it took the magic and adventure of song and dance for them to actually meet. And once they could cut through everything else, that's when they can fall in love, because they just couldn't have otherwise. And you know the the genie says, "I can't make someone fall in love with you," and so the wish is to be a prince which just gets him in the door, gets him past all these guards, gets him past all of these traditional class structures that we see. And the wishes are getting him over that. And as you say, it all becomes this, this repeated phrase, the diamond in the rough. And yes, when I was a kid, I always took that to mean that he was a diamond amongst the rough of the street life. Like he was the diamond and everyone else around him was rough. And more and more as I watched it, I always that turned to being that he is rough, but in his core has a di- is a diamond. So, mm. yes, he lies about being Prince Ali. He lies about the various things to get himself into the palace. But when it comes down to it, comes down to his last wish, he still wishes Ginny free because at his core he's a diamond. And yes. that was one yeah. real big revelation for me this time. Was like I just suddenly saw that he's like, the roughness is not the people who live on the streets with him. Because that would be weirdly judgy of, of of the movie. Like it's it's about him. Is that his core in himself is a nice person, and then you've got Jafar who puts on all the airs and graces and appears. And he's this real kind of he, oh he's a grand vizier and they're always evil. But he's this real kind of quite polite, quite understated, quite supportive tone he gives to um, the Sultan and Jasmine when they're looking. But his core is rotten. In, in, in itself is rotten and there's, there's this yeah. real sort of inside outside element and you know even someone like Sultan who is a buffoon and clearly is being sort of led and tricked by Jafar when it reaches when it reaches you know, the, the sort of core of what's going on he can reach inside himself and change the law because he can hmm. you know and then that that the ending is really important because Aladdin becomes worthy of marrying Jasmine because he is, as you say, at his core, he's essentially a nice person. Mm-hmm. And because he understands that he has to stop pretending to be something. He has to stop pretending to be worth in a way that he's not. Yeah. So he un- understands that it's all about honesty and that like, worth kind of, moral and ethical idea and, and value of pure financial are 
completely different things, and that's something that your father doesn't understand at all. And then they're not the same thing, and Aladdin's understanding of that is is why mm. he's he's able to free the genie at the end, and he's able to get the girl. And it's the it's the eleva ele, it's the elevation of people over power that. Jafar, all he wants is power, and that's why he can be trapped at the end in being a genie. Because all he cares about, he doesn't care about people, he doesn't think that anyone can be smarter than him. All he cares about is power. Whereas Aladdin is the one who forgoes power. Ultimately, a wish is nothing but power. You can do anything you want. It's a, it's, 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 it's a powerful wish. He forgoes that power for himself because he sees the genie as a whole rounded person who he values more than that power. And he values... Mm. He values the people over what they can give him. You know, he obviously he's in love with Jasmine, want to marry her, but he also values the promises he's made and he values his word. And that's the real sort of balance of that movie is that, that the subversion of this idea that the lower classes are rough and the upper classes are the diamonds. Um, which yeah. you know, class structures all over the world will always hang on their hats on this that somehow. Our betters are the people who are of a higher class than us. There's a long-standing British um, uh, skit about I look down on him, I look up to him, I look down to him, of three comedians of being upper, middle, and lower class. And there's always been this idea that the upper classes are who we look up to. And you know, as Brits, we are inundated with um, period movies about the rich upper classes and what they're like. And we have a real obsession with that. Um, and then we have our sitcoms about our, our soap operas about the working class, which are always you no know, soap operas. So they are lying and cheating and doing horrible things to each other. So that, that's like a, a general trope that runs through our society. And this movie is kind of going like the upper classes can be. You've got, you've got the three meet Jafar, Sultan, and Jasmine, and one Jafar is evil to his core. One is an absolute in. Uh, in competent nincompoop and then there's jasmine who is trapped by the trappings of of her richness and none of them are a better or worse but none of them are a better person than aladdin who is a street orphan and i think there's a the film that, that kind of the real revelation of the movie is this idea of the subverting of classist tropes that so many of us are raised with mm. yeah sorry that was a small rant there wasn't it no, I did a lot of being quiet there because I just want to listen to you. Right? <laughs> um, no, it's really good. And I think that is kind of at the core of why this movie is so... It resonates with people so much. And Aladdin, it's it's not... I mean, there will be... To, to stereotype, there will be little girls wanting to be Disney princesses and wanting to be Princess Jasmine, although I, I would hope that um, Brave and Moana are better examples of young female robots. But there will always be space in the culture for people appreciating Aladdin himself and siding with Aladdin himself. And I think that's refreshing, particularly in the so climates that you're talking about have, I mean, because what you seem to be saying is that there's, and I agree with you, there's this sort of, there's a voyeurism about looking at the lower classes and also looking at the upper classes and we view mm. 
we and putting myself in well let's lump us all into the, the great middle classes but looking up and down and you view equally voyeuristically the upper classes and the lower classes and this this seemed to be saying well there's something damaging about treating us the lower classes like that because look at what we can be as much as mm. as the the upper classes can if be. If not more so. Yes, yeah. Do you have some recommendations, Sam? I do. One of them I've briefly mentioned in passing there. Um see another film directed by Ron Clements. Um though more recently and I would suggest that it provides a better model for a young Disney princess in inverted commas is Moana. Um the I mean, the everything is great about Moana. I don't have a bad thing to say about the film. It's it looks stunning and Dwayne Johnson is a revelation and Ali Gravali is brilliant and the music's by Limamo Miranda, so what's not to like? My second recommendation is the actor playing the bumbling buffoon of the Sultan, who's also in um, one of my favourite films of the 1980s, is Amadeus. Um, was a source of, well, a fictionalisation, a dramatisation of the last days of the 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 life and then the last days of Mozart and his relationship with Salieri. So those are in very different films, but both thoroughly recommended by me. Fair enough. I've also gone the director route. Um, the... Uh... The directing duo of Ron Clements and John Musker have had a lot of movies together. Um, but I wanted to talk about a film they made 10 years after Aladdin, and that's the 2002 movie Treasure Planet. This is after the Renaissance, and this is certainly in some of the fallow years of Disney films. Um, and Treasure Planet certainly doesn't get the love that um, a lot of other Disney films do. But essentially it is a steampunk sci-fi retelling of Treasure Island. Um, replete with aliens and robots and flying spaceships that look like tall mast ships and it is an absolute aesthetic trip of a movie um, and I love it, I absolutely love it um, it is very much forgotten in the annals of um, Disney movies um, it isn't a princess in it, it isn't a princess movie so it doesn't sort of have that staying power among the uh, demographic of these days but it's absolutely worth checking out, if you haven't seen it it's just really really good and kids of a certain age enjoy it, it's not for the youngest of children, it is a you but there's certainly more violence in it than something like Aladdin but I still think it's worth checking out my second one is Oddly enough, and this is a revelation to me when I was looking at IMDb earlier, but the actor who plays Aladdin, um, played by Scott, I want to say Winger, Winger um, he has gone on to do a lot of things, mostly playing Aladdin in various bits of media. But he was also a producer. He also produces TV, um, which I presume is his main job. And he was producer on a movie from, from a TV series from 2015, 2016, that I love, absolutely love this, this show. And... It kind of came and went in unceremoniously, um, and that's the TV show Gallivant. 
Um, I don't know if you guys out there have seen it. It didn't have a huge following. Um, but essentially it is a musical fantasy TV series, a comedy one. It's a comedy show um, about a chosen hero whose wife leaves him for an evil king. Um, and it inverts the tropes of the fantasy genre. It um, plays the moment and it's got Vinnie Jones playing a singing henchman. And what more would you want from a TV show than that? Um, he was a producer on it. Um, it's a tenuous link, I will grant you, but any chance about the show and I will grab it both hands. Yeah, that's me. Next time we will be looking at the... Um, Rob mentioned a couple of the sequels, so we're not going to be looking at those sequels. We were looking at the live-action remake from 2019, um, as I've mentioned already with some trepidation about um, how Will Smith is going to tackle the shoes left by Robin Williams. And... Um, until then, you can get in touch with both of us on Twitter at Prestige Podcast. Uh, you can find me at Kydrifem. And you can get in touch with just me at Prestige Film Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll be back here, guys, in two weeks. We'll see you then.